It is a truism that what you believe and what you think will affect how you behave. It's an absolute fact, biblically, psychologically, in every other way that you can imagine, that what you believe and how you think will affect how you act. It's what we saw in Malachi last week. We come back to that same passage today because I want to finish it up today and, and finish this first chapter, but, but I want you to see the significance of that truth and recognize that the significance of that truth in Malachi's day is very applicable to our day today. What you believe about God, what you believe about worship, what you believe about Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, our great triune God, will affect how you behave, how you act, not just out there, although it will have a dramatic and significant effect on how you act out there, but also how you act and how you behave in worship. It's important to recognize that. It's important to realize that because that, that is what Malachi is wanting the people in his day to see, and that's what God is wanting you and me to see in our day as we come here in this place to worship him. Hear the word of the Lord again from Malachi. I'll start reading again in, in verse 6 and, and read through verse 14. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priest who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? Well, you're presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer that to your governor? As we saw last week, why not try to pay your taxes with that which is useless? Would he be pleased with you or would he receive you kindly? says the Lord of hosts. But now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, he will, uh, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered in my name and grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it, and that you say the table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, oh my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery or deceit and what is lame and sick. So you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, that is, wants to look good, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. 
One thing we saw last week was that the problems Malachi is addressing is more a problem of attitude, really, than it is of actions. Oh, oh the actions were bad. They, they were bringing lame and blind uh, animals to, the, to make sacrificial offerings to the Lord. When God had said you're to bring your best, you're to bring a pure, you're to bring one that's not lame, not blemished in any way, you're to bring the first fruits of what you have and offer to the Lord. And, and they were doing actions that were bringing the lame, and they were, they were talking about it being so tiresome to come to worship. It just required so much. And, and in reality, what we see there is there were actions that were taking place that Malachi is clearly pointing out to. But the real issue, the real problem is only demonstrated by the actions. The real issue is really the attitudes that was behind the actions that betrayed, that the actions betrayed and showed what was really taking place in their minds. You know, they were coming and doing all the right things. They were coming and going through all the right motions. They were singing the songs when they were supposed to sing. They were standing when they were supposed to stand, sitting when they were supposed to sit. They were doing all the things rightly in an external sort of way. But internally, what they ended up bringing to do in the right way was wrong, and it betrayed that they really didn't have an action problem as much as they had an attitude problem. We, we closed last week by thinking about what, what true worship does. When we really and truly worship God, when we come before Him, we worship Him, it, it does two things. It expresses the feeling of God's value and His greatness. When we come to this table, this Lord's table, what we're doing is we're, we're expressing the value and the greatness of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. We're not coming just to get a little juice and get a little bread and, and go home and say we did that. I, I talked with one person a dear brother, a few weeks ago about a, a church that he was visiting, and there was one little thing that kind of concerned him about it. And, and it, I thought it was going to be something that it wasn't. He said, the first thing he said was, they, they, they have the Lord's Supper every Sunday. And I said, oh, nothing wrong with that. If, if I really had my way, I'd do it every Sunday too. I, would, I, I, I love coming to the Lord's table. I think it's valuable. He said, but it's the way they do it. I said, well, how do they do it? He said, well, nobody serves the Lord's Supper. They just have a couple of stations set aside. They call stations of remembrance. And during the offertory, if you want to take the Lord's Supper, you just go over and get a piece of bread and get some juice and eat it and drink it and go back to your seat. And that's the way they observe the Lord's Supper. Uh, it's just if you, if you want to do it, it's over there, go get it. Somebody else told me about a church they went to that, that every Sunday as you went out the doors, they had, some, they had some tables back there. And as you were going home, you could take some bread and take some juice and observe. No real serving it, no real thinking about it, no real talking about what happened on that, at, at that time when that first table was served. And, and he said, would you have a problem with that, Pastor? I said, do you see us doing that at Grace? Yeah, I have, I'd have a real problem with that. Because this, this, this meal is to be observed corporately together, not individually. That's why I don't do the Lord's Supper and weddings with a bride and a groom. A lot of times they ask me if you'll do that. And I say, I, I really don't think that's what the Lord's Supper is for. I think the Lord's Supper is a corporate experience where the body comes together for worship and we spend that time really focusing on thinking about worshiping before the, the crucified Lord and the risen Lord. And if we don't do it with those kind of attitudes, we don't do it at all. So the, the really the first thing that true worship does is it, it brings that expression of God's value 
an expression of God's greatness before our eyes. Again, that's why we concentrate on focusing only on Him during a time of worship. It, 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 it comes from the heart where God is to be treasured above all human property and all human possessions. And you have to think about that. Second thing we said that worship does is it seeks to demonstrate that in the congregation in the same spiritual sense we see God's immensity, His worth, and His beauty together. It's not just one-on-one, you and the Lord. There is that place for that, but, but in corporate worship we come together and we express it broadly among the body of Christ sharing in that meal together it's a glorious time and all of our worship whether we're coming to the table or whether we're just coming to come before him and sing his praises and and hear his word there there has to be if it's going to be true worship there has to be that focusing upon that concentrating upon him a couple of people asked me last week as we left here they said you know i just i find that so hard sometimes you know i i come in and i've, I've had a a fight with my wife before I come to church. I won't tell you who it was. But, you know, and, and, and I'm just, when I'm sitting there, I'm thinking about when I get out of here, how can I answer what she was saying before the service? You know, well, you're not worshiping. You may be going through the motions. They said, well, how do you, how do you, another person said, how do you do it? You know, I, I had a rough week, and I'm, I'm trying to think about, okay, things were so bad at work this week, how am I going to make them better this week? And how, I'm sitting there thinking, I'm praying, I said, Lord, please make work better this week than it was last week. And I said, then you're not worshiping. So they said, well, how do you do that? I said, it takes discipline. It really takes spiritual discipline. It's not something that just happens. You have to focus, you have to concentrate, you have to come into this place, and, and I'm, I'm all, all about, before the service, greeting one another and being friendly and saying hi and hugging one another and, 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 and fellowshipping a bit, but you know, just a few minutes before we start this service, as, as the, organ, uh, the, the keyboard, the piano starts playing you know, softly, there ought to be a time where we just kind of sit down and, and, and be quiet. The psalmist said, be still and know that I am God. It should be just a stillness where I say, Lord, clear my mind. Clear, clear the problems I had on the way to church. Clear the problems I had at work. Lord, help me just focus on you. And maybe open up to a passage that, that, that just focuses on his character. And meditate on it. Look at it. Read it. Mull it over. Prepare your heart to come before the Lord corporately with the body as we worship together. True worship aims to inspire the same God-centered passion in the hearts of the entire congregation so that when we walk out of here, it will be the same God-inspired passion in each of our lives that will face difficulties at work, that will face struggles in the marriage or in the family, that will face whatever comes our way that week. We have so focused on Him. We have so worshiped Him that our whole week is molded by that worship and molded by our Lord. When they brought the bad animals, the lame animals, the blind animals, they were unacceptable. They were right things in the sense that they were a lamb or a goat or or whatever was offered, but but they were the wrong attitudes because they were just giving God what they didn't need. 
a real problem with that in Malachi's day, a real problem with that in our day, is that there's just a real loss of biblical authority in many of our churches. I mean, there really is. Most people, if you ask them what they think about God, they, they will give you the latest faddish idea about, oh, he's just this great loving God who just looks over everything and just, you know, is so tolerant of everything, has no real standards, has no real holiness about him, and that's not the God of the Scripture. They, 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 there's a loss of biblical authority to say, this is how God has revealed himself. You know, some people look at it and say, well, I, I don't know about this whole Trinity thing. On, our, on Sunday night in my class, we're studying the Trinity, and they, you know, some people look at it and say, I can't really get my head around one God, three persons, and how that all comes together. I just, I just want to talk about, I just want to believe there's just one God. All this Father, Son, Holy Spirit being God, I can't accept all that. Well, then you can't accept it. You can't accept the authority of the Scripture that reveals that to be true. Whenever the, whenever the church, whenever in the church, biblical authority has been lost, then Christ will be displaced. Christ, as, as being central and at the center, will be displaced. And, and programs might take his place. Morality might take his place. Any number of things might take his place. But whenever the church loses biblical authority, when it's lost, Christ will be displaced and the gospel will be distorted. The gospel will be distorted. It'll be made man-centered. It'll be made what I can do. It becomes a moralism rather than a true gospel good news message. This, this goes back a long way, but I remember one day sitting in my office in Orlando, Florida, and, and I, I had a private fax machine in my office because I was on the board of a ministry and I had to get a lot of private confidential stuff. So I had a private fax machine that I thought only two or three people had the number of that fax machine, but evidently somebody got a hold of it. And I remember an advertisement coming over. Now, this, this won't mean a lot. The man's almost dead now. He actually lives in Maui, but, but he's, he's very ill. But this, this advertisement came across for a new book that was coming out and that every pastor needed to, to buy and every pastor needed to preach from. Well, I preached from the Bible. I didn't know there was a new Bible coming out. But, but this one came and it said, the title of the book was, If It's to Be, It's Up to Me. Robert Schuller. And it was advertised. Greatest thing that's been written since whatever. That's kind of what happens when biblical authority is lost and when Christ is displaced from centrality in the body, it becomes the gospel is distorted, faith is perverted, and it all revolves around me. And I'm the one who changes everything. I'm the one who's in charge. I'm the one who's in control. Our interests displace, displaces God's concern, God's purpose, and God's work, and God's ministry among his people. And, and we end up doing his work our way, which is not doing his work at all. You see the problem when worship is neglected, when worship is missed? Today in our church, there is the loss of the centrality of Christ that is tragic and visible in so many ways. Maybe not here. Maybe you're sitting there saying, well, Bill, that's all you talk about is Christ-centeredness. That's all we do is worship God. That's all we do is look to the Holy Spirit. I and mean, we, we, we worship Trinitarianly every week. We focus on that. We work on that. But, but I'm talking about in the church at large. You, you could easily go on, if you were at home, and I'm glad you're not, I'm glad you're here. 
But if you're home, you can easily go on TV and just flip through the channels and hear all sorts of man-centered teaching. All sorts of teaching that's like, if, if it's to be, it's up to me. All sorts of things that take the glory of God away and put the glory upon man. There's a tragic loss of centrality of God in many worships today. And, and what this loss does, it, it turns worship, it transforms worship into entertainment. And, and there's more focus on, on being entertained and liking and, and you know, it being what I want, what I like, and I, I'm entertained and I leave here and, and feel good about it because I was entertained. It changes gospel preaching into marketing. Do this, buy this, try this. Rather than saying this is what the Word says. It turns believing into a technique. If you say these words, pray this prayer repeat them over and over and over again, then, then God will have to bless you. No, it's not a technique. Believing is trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. Above everything else. It changes being holy into feeling good about ourselves. It, it changed pursuing holiness to pursuing self-esteem. And, and, and we see that all the time in, in just... You know, I'll never forget the person who came to me one time and said, Bill, I just got to be honest with you. you. You preach too much in the Bible. You talk too much about sin. I just don't feel good about myself when I leave. I said, well, is that because, is that because there's sin there that needs to be dealt with and you don't want to deal with it? I don't want to talk about that, was his response. It... it it trans if, if God is not central, if Christ is not central, it transforms faithfulness to him into just being successful. Looks at numbers, looks at budgets, the old Baptist way of counting nickels and noses, and, and everything is just fine if, if we can just draw a crowd and, and get a lot. As a result, God, Christ, and the Bible have come to mean li too little to many people. And worship becomes inconsequential. Just becomes what we come to, not what we do. Need I remind you that you don't come to worship any more than you come to church? You come and you worship because you are the church you don't come to church you are the church if you're in Christ I, I love what Stephen Charnock said if you've never read Charnock you should you, you can probably he's got a, a, a two-volume work called the existence and attributes of God and it's about probably a thousand pages maybe a little more and and I guarantee you if you if you're really a good reader you can read and understand two pages a day <laughs> but I love Charnock I'll, you can probably even find a modernized version. But Charnock said this about worship. He said, we may truly be said to worship God, though we lack perfection. But we cannot be said to worship Him if we lack sincerity. And if we fail to come by His Word. We may not be perfect in our worship. Indeed, we won't be perfect in our worship. We won't be perfect in our lives. 
But, but we can be said to worship him if we come sincerely before him as he has told us to come, focusing upon him, not upon something else. We find ourselves in the presence of the true and the living God. We come before God with imperfect lives, with our troubles, our struggles, even with our sin. And we say, Lord, open my heart that all that I am and all that I have to bring to you, even in my failure and frustrations and my stresses and my struggles. But Lord, I come before you with a sincere heart. When we enter into worship and our hearts and minds are distracted, we don't come with sincerity before God and we do not worship God. We tend to worship our problems. We tend to worship some solutions maybe but not worshiping. We merely carry on, as they did in Malachi's day, worthless religious activity. When we come to worship, there ought to be a change that's made in us. Every, every week. It's, it's, not a, it's not a salvific change, because if we're in Christ and we're worshiping Him, we're already saved. But it ought to be a change of life. There ought to be a change of perspective. There ought to be a change of attitude. You know, and I can be the, I can be the world's worst. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, I, can, I can stand here and preach the glories of Christ, preach the authority of his word, preach the power of the Holy Spirit, preach the sovereignty and the majesty and the gloriousness of God. I can paint a picture of you for you of how great God is, and I can walk out there and I can say, hey, how about the tide yesterday? Or wildcats or cardinals or whatever. You just kind of say, what does that matter? We've just in the pre- been in the presence of the living God. I like what John Jowett, Jowett excuse me, John Henry Jowett, who was a, a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon in the late 1800s, he said this about leaving worship. It's in your faith talk there. I, I, I asked Brother Scott, as he's writing the faith talk this week, to, to use this quote and, and use it as a point of discussion, if you would, with your family. This is what he said about leaving worship. We talk a lot about coming to worship. We talk about coming and worshiping. We talk about what we do here. But I want you to hear what Jowett said. Don't look at it now. Just listen. <laughs> a rustling of papers like a mighty wind. No, just listen. You can read it afterwards. Jowett said this, We leave our places of worship with no deep, inexpressible wonder, wonder sitting upon our faces. We can sing these lilting melodies, and when we get out into the streets, our faces are one with those faces who have left the theaters and the music halls. There's nothing about us to suggest that we have even been looking at anything stupendous and overwhelming. Far back in my boyhood, I remember an old saint telling me that after some services, he liked to make his way home alone by the quiet bypasses so that the hush of the Almighty might remain on his awed and prostrated soul. Jowett said over 150 years ago, that is the element that we are missing.
Yahweh doesn't say it happens every time. Even this old saint says there's, at times, at times I like to do this. Some services. Not always. It wouldn't be bad if it were always. But when's the last time you were so struck by the presence of God, so struck by the, by the majesty of God, so struck by his holiness, that you don't want to talk to anybody? Not because you're mad at them, but just because any light conversation might distract from from your soul laying prostrated before, awed before Almighty God. When was the last time you came to this table and your heart was just broken? Because that was done for me. That was done for us. That was done to bring us in 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 closeness with God. That was done that we might be adopted into the family of God. That is a thought that ought to strike us. That is a thought that ought to consume us. That is a thought that ought to lay us bare before the true and the living God. If we know him. Somebody says, how you do that? You do it by thinking. You do it by meditating. You do it by desiring. We're driven by our desires. That's why we fall into sin so often. We want it. We worship by desiring Him more than we desire possessions, other relationships, treasures, anything and everything. But that desire is something that has to be cultivated. It has to be built by the Spirit of God within, drawing us to His Word, changing us by His Spirit. Worship that is careless is not worship at all. Worship that is true will grip you with the awesomeness of God. There's that word, awesome. I ate at a restaurant yesterday for lunch. I ordered a dish. The waitress said, oh, that's awesome. No, it's not. It's good, and it was really good. Loretta was offered choices of sauces for her burrito or enchilada. And she tasted one side, she'd go with another, and when the, she made the other choice, oh, that, that's an awesome choice. Just a choice for some stinking sauce. If everything's awesome, nothing's awesome. There's really only one thing that's awesome, only one person that's awesome, only one idea that is awesome. And that's the true and the living God. 
Folks, he is awesome. And when we worship him in spirit, in sincerity, and the truth of his word for who he is, we are gripped by his awesomeness. We are gripped by his majesty. We are gripped by his love. We are gripped by his grace. We are gripped by the sacrifice. Let's pray. Father, we just want to worship you. We're about to sing a hymn that talks about your work in our lives, who are believers, that gives us cause to thank you, that gives us cause to glory in you. Father, help us think about that. Help us meditate on that even as we sing this great scriptural truth. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.